Hi, my name is Owen. I'm the minister of Park End Church in Cardiff. And occasionally I make videos answering the questions that people ask in church life. And this is one of them. Let's talk about abortion. Now, this question and one or two other ones, I tend not to bother talking too much on because it seems like churches obsess over them and talk about nothing else. But this question keeps on coming up and people want to hear what the Bible says about this whole issue of abortion. This was going to be a video for just the teenagers, a shorter one, but I've expanded it a bit and we'll probably make a shorter teenagers version of this video at a later date. I should probably also say that I don't think every Christian you'll meet will share the opinion of what I'm about to say. Perhaps they instead could present to you a more logical and convincing argument. So, let's talk about abortion. It's really interesting that when this keeps being put to me, the question is this, is abortion a sin? I actually dumbed that title down because I didn't want the video to look hostile in its title, is it a sin? But it is interesting that people always word it like that when they bring it up to people like me and ministers. And the people who usually ask it don't really care about sin or what the Bible says is sin and what's right or wrong or what does God think about other things in my life that might be sinful. In fact, as soon as I'm asked that, it very quickly follows 90% of the time that I'm quickly told that religion has no place in this debate. Don't bring those ancient religious ideas into this problem. That's usually what quickly follows. And so if that is you, and you're just asking this question because maybe you're angry and, and rather genuinely wanting to know what God thinks is abortion, right or wrong, you just want more fuel to the fire of anger against the religious institution of Christianity or people like me. I just want to ask a question back. This idea of right and wrong and sin and not sin, this idea of a moral framework. If religion does have no place in it at all, and we'll get to whether it does or not later, where do you get your moral framework from? Where do you get your idea of right or wrong and when a line has been crossed or the idea of sin? If we do write off videos like this, what alternative sort of point of reference do you have to call big shots in life? Like whether something lives or dies, whether something is a person or a human, where something gets its value from, to where do you go? I guess it's what the general populace are saying at the time. But then a further question would be, what was the general populace saying 20 years ago? And if they said something is right, but now we think it's wrong, where's the standard in that? In 20 more years, if they currently say that your beliefs are wrong, which at the moment they're saying are right, what happens then? What were the general populace saying in Germany in 1939 about who was valuable and who wasn't? Further, just in the intro before we sort of really dive into things, I'm also always told that I have no right to answer people's questions on this because I do not have a uterus. Well, I wholeheartedly concede that I will never know the pains and difficulties that women go through when they fall pregnant and they come to this crossroads with an option to keep it or not. 
But I also would like to think everybody listening doesn't really believe that only one sex has a right to advise one sex. I would like to think that if a woman falls pregnant because of rape, both sexes would be free and valid to condemn the actions of the rapist and perhaps encourage a different path for him. That said, I would now like to give some of the best arguments I think can be made for having an abortion. I meet some Christians and they instantly just shut it down. No, it's a sin in every instance, all of the time, and I won't even engage in discussion about it. Well, in rapid fire, here are things that I've spent years and years thinking over and learning about. The best cases for abortion, in my opinion. First, that it's the lesser of two evils and both outcomes are so terrible that one has to give way and the mother chooses an abortion. Within this, of course, things like rape or incest or guaranteed suffering of either the mother or the child. That is no small thing. Next, here's one I spent years stewing over. If you were running towards a burning building and you only had time to save one and there was a baby at one end of the building and an embryo in a tube or something in the other, which would you save? Let's just say it's a three-month-old baby. Most people would run and save the baby. Therefore, it's sort of clear to all that there is more value on that which is outside of the womb, a few months old, than that which is inside in the zygote stage. And another one, and this is a big one that we studied in college, because I'm sure developments were happening uh, then, news was breaking, you can now, well I can't, but scientists can now split an embryo into several others and then remerge it. So if the religious among us are going to argue that an embryo, a fertilized egg, has a soul and is a person, but then it gets split into a few more and then re-emerged back into one, well, what happens to the two or three which have vanished? What happens to the souls of those which have vanished? Are we really going to go all the way and say that to destroy or make vanish an embryo is to destroy a person with a soul? Now, you might have several more than that, but those are the ones which hold the most weight for me. Now, I just want to give some rapid-fire responses to those before we get to the main issues about this subject of abortion. Who would we rescue in a burning building? Obviously the baby. Here's why I'm hesitant with even that question. Because human beings can be so bad at making these big calls. We can be so biased on what we are drawn to to save. Our capacity can be so selfish that we often choose things which benefit us the most. We choose things which are better looking than non-good looking things. We choose things that are less annoying and we want to be around them more because they serve us more. 
We choose things which are young and fit and healthy over things which are old and gray. And there's a red flag there to make this such an easy call. Not only that, that line of thinking worries me because it potentially opens us up to this dangerous line of thought. We place more value on things which maybe have more awareness or self-consciousness than other things. We might end up placing less value on that which is disabled, less in some way. Less capable, but that's very different to less valuable. We know where that line of thought has ended up in the past. Choosing the obviously more able among us, according to our standards. And so even when thinking about this remerged embryo discussion, we have to be so careful on making huge calls. I think that if there is another standard to appeal to outside our own little cultural definitions, we should definitely have a consideration of it. And now we're moving, I think, to the main issues at stake here. If we're going to choose what lives and what doesn't live, we have to ask, what is a person? And not only that, what is the standard to make a call on whether something is valuable or not, worth living or not? If something is going to suffer, does it therefore have less purpose and value? Linked to that, of course, is when or at what point does an embryo or later a fetus, when does it become valuable or a person? Some really tough questions I think people who are pro-abortion have to answer are when does a fetus become a child? When does it have human value? Now, at this point, I'm going to start appealing to God and his word. I'm going to bring in religion. And before you switch off, just hear out why I think we should bring those things in. There was a man who ironically was an atheist called Jean-Paul Sartre. 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 And he said this, without an infinite reference point, every finite point is absurd. In other words, if there is no God, no outside point of reference to call upon and look to in issues like this, we essentially have to create our own ideas on what's valuable and impose them onto things. We just figure it out for ourselves and it changes with time and culture and country and history. Without God, of course, we are essentially just like chaotic elements, protoplasm, meat and bones in motion. And if that's the case, who defines the answers to the big questions about meaning and purpose and value and personhood and humanity? Well, the answer is whoever has the most influential voice at the time. And so when defining those big issues, it is a religious debate. Like asking this, who is the point of authority over life and calling those big shots? I think it was a minister in America, Doug, 
something Wilson, who said, there's no way to resolve any of this until we get down to the issue, who has the authoritative word? And that is a religious question. If you listening really just believe you're nothing more than protoplasm, that is a religious call. That is a huge call, multi-layered call. It's an existential call. And it trickles right down to the basics of all of this, like what if the quality of life of this child is going to be bad? What if they're going to be ill or be hospitalized? Well, not too long ago, there was a group of people who had the loudest voice who said it was fine to kill people who had been born with Down syndrome. Why? Because they have a bad quality of life and they wanted to breed a more superior race of humans. That is a hugely religious and transient call to make. You are less than us. Further, it's quite a prophetic call to make, a religiously prophetic call where we peer into the future and we know for sure what a quality of life is going to be like. You could say that about any child not yet born. But herein comes my Christian faith into this matter. The Bible makes it clear that even if people suffer, that does not mean they are less or that their life is not worth living. I know babies that have been born and died shortly after and they have left a powerful lifelong legacy on their parents and their friends. Whether we are going to suffer in life and have a short life or suffer and have a very long life, does any of us really have the right to say, therefore, you have this much value? Whether someone lasts two years or 48 years, whether someone is disabled or ill or has pain, the Bible does not say, therefore, one is more or less valuable than the other, or that their life means less or was not worth living. Are we really in a position to say that something is a life not worth living when the Bible makes it clear that according to the living God, people who suffer have so much meaning? One Christian said this, by judging difficult and even tragic human life as a worse evil than taking life, Abortionists contradict the widespread biblical teaching that God loves to show his gracious power through suffering and not just by helping people avoid suffering. Suffering, according to the Christian faith, is never viewed as merely a tragedy. It is also viewed as a means of growing deep with God and becoming something glorious in the life to come. Read for yourself Romans chapter 5, James chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 4 and 12. And read Romans 8 verse 18. Now, the second big issue is when does a person become a person? When does a human come into existence? Is it at conception or halfway through the term or after it's being born? What is a human? I actually think is a worrying way of asking that. 
I prefer who is a human. When we ask what is a human, we start listing things like something that has intelligence and can speak a language and can process information or communicate with others and has morals of some sort. Bible helps us to see humanity slightly differently than that and slightly better and richer and deeper. The Bible asks who is a human and the Bible answers that the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says every other one of us are made in his image. Listen to these two occasions. There was a man called John the Baptist. He was in his second term fetus. And there was a man called Jesus in his first term embryo. Here's Luke chapter 1 verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that's John, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's value in the womb and activity in the womb. And in Luke 2, 21 and 22, this one's about Jesus, not John the Baptist. It says this, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus actually had his personhood, his name, like almost foreordained, defined before he was even conceived. What value that is. He was Lord. He had his name before, during and after birth. If you also look at Job chapter 3 verse 3 and Psalm 51 verse 5, you'll see like a person's identity is given right from the beginning. It's hard to make sense of those stories in the Bible if human identity comes later than conception. God never seems to say things like this. That clump of cells inside of the womb is going to become human and going to become a person. And what's really interesting about Jesus being called Jesus and Saviour and his values seeming to exist in God's plan even before he was conceived, it sort of clashes with the pro-abortionist type idea that a, like the, th the thing in the womb is a clump of cells of DNA which has the potential to be a person. It's almost like a strange form of adoptionism that there was some DNA inside of Mary's womb and then later on Jesus came and adopted that DNA, that potential human, and owned it for himself. It sort of existed in some form before his arrival on top of it and in it. You just don't find that language in the Bible. Things, to be, things seem to be valued and planned and preordained and leaping even in the womb. Not, oh, there's these potential things and then people come and adopt them and arrest them and take them on and own them for themselves and that's when they become valuable. No, things seem to be planned way before that. It's really hard to screw down this line of thought. Potential human DNA, potential human DNA of week 16, proper human, fully valued, got the identity. In Psalm 139 verse 13 it says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And therefore I think it's really hard to say when discussing abortion there's only two parties involved the mother and the father, instead of the mother, the father and the baby. And even when the 
father is a jerk and he's not going to be around. Why would we remove the innocent party of the wonderful child in the womb, which has godly value in it, for the crimes of the father? Let me be quite frank and pointed with my questions as we wrap these things up with some shorter final points. The floodgates are really open here for mass death. Abortion at the moment seems to be more like contraception. In most cases, it's not about rape, it's about inconvenience. The finances aren't going to be there, or the dad is a waster. The mum will have to face life alone. The mum needs a career. Some of my Christian friends are against abortion en masse, like in contraception, but they allow for it on occasion. Now, this is a really difficult pastoral situation, but I do think it's hard to say it's wrong en masse, but not on an individual occasional level. Why does that occasional object in the womb have less value than the ones when en masse? Just on that note, I find it interesting that people really get angry with parts of the Bible when God decides who lives and who dies. There's one chapter in the Bible where after God gives a horrible group of people committing genocide and all sorts, infanticide and all sorts of crimes, he gives them 400 years of warning before he moves in. If it were us with the UN, we would have demanded they move in to get rid of that group and punish them after a week. But God gives them 400 years in his patience and people get really angry that there's mass judgment in parts of the Bible. I do find it a bit logically inconsistent that when we choose who lives and who dies, it's our right. When God does it, it's immoral. In cases of rape and incest, I'm going to be so gentle here and I have no idea how difficult that must be for you. I do know that there are churches in your local area who want to come alongside you and hear you and cry with you and help you work things out and pray with you. But might it be the case that killing the weak is not the best option? Ronald Reagan, I think it was, said, I've noticed that everybody that is for abortion has already been born. Just help shed some light on this vulnerable status versus the strong who get to make calls on their behalf. I'll end with some questions that I find really difficult to answer, or at least I would if I was pro-abortion. Here's the question. Can you finish this sentence? Five minutes before a baby is born, it isn't a baby because, I don't know how you would answer that, maybe you would say it is a baby that late stage, it is a human with values and because it's just five minutes until it's just a matter of geography really then, the human is this side of a wall of skin and in five minutes it's going to be that side of a wall of skin. Well okay, if you'll concede that, could you answer this? five weeks before it's born. A baby isn't a baby because. And then if I could ask this, finish this sentence. It's okay to kill a baby in a womb when... And I call us all to wisely reflect on the answers we just gave to that. I was watching Good Morning last week and 
Paris Fury was on there, the wife of the boxer Tyson Fury. And the presenters had heard that she had recently had a miscarriage. But it was really interesting the way that the presenter phrased what she was about to say next. And she said, I'm so sorry, but we heard that in the build-up to Tyson's latest fight, you lost a baby. There is no one listening to this video more sinful than I. I have sins in my life and in my past which are far worse than the sin of abortion if you are now convinced that it is. And everybody listening, whether this has happened to you or not, is 100% welcome to church, to the faith of Christianity and to the Lord Jesus Christ. If he has welcomed me, he has welcomed you. One book says this. The Lord Jesus offers forgiveness for women who have aborted a child. He offers it to men who have encouraged their girlfriends or wife to abort their child. He offers it to employees of abortion clinics. And he offers it to those who are apathetic and doing nothing about this in our society. If you have any follow-up questions, please get in touch at owen at parkendcardiff.org.uk. Amen.